Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Gives uh, gives me real pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Ajahn Chandako. And if, for those who uh, who haven't been around a, a, a Theravadan monk, when you speak to uh, speak to uh, a monk, you address them usually as Bante. Um, so if you were going to speak to him directly, uh, and you instead of saying Ajahn Chandako, which you can say as well, but you could just uh, say Bante. Um, so Bante has been a um, uh, monk since when, 1990 or so, 1990. And uh, oh, let's put this on. And um, <coughs> is in the, uh, the lineage, Ajahn Chah lineage, uh, which is the Thai Forest Monastery, um, uh, Thai Forest tradition. Um, spent 15 years in Thailand um, uh, in... Uh, in robes and uh, has been the abbot, as I said, of Vimuti Monastery uh, in New Zealand, uh, not that f- just south of Auckland, um, for um, how long? Is Eleven it? years. Eleven now. years. Yeah, and I, I visited it a couple of years ago. Jane and I uh, were in Australia, and New Zealand, and uh, it's this really lush, beautiful. Um, uh, space and uh, when they got the land, it was pretty a desolate wasteland. Desolate, yeah. It was barren. There was nothing there, and they just planted and planted and planted, and uh, created the conditions for the natural beauty to just shine through. It was amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just really so um, delightful to to get to know uh, get to know you. And uh, it's been great catching up today. We've had some uh, really rich conversations, and uh, I think you'll also enjoy what comes out of him. So, um, Bonte, please take it away. Thank you, James. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Buddhang namang sanghang namasami I realized recently that I've spent about half my life living outside the United States, which I've been very grateful for to have that perspective. And when I do come back to the U.S., uh, I notice different things you know, at different times. Um, but living in Thailand, living in New Zealand, one thing that I notice when coming back, when I come back to the States, it's like, I think Americans worry a bit. You know, I think Americans tend to worry maybe a bit. It it stands out. And uh, there are causes to worry. And there are causes for worrying to cease. 
And worrying seems like such a, it's almost a mental disease <laughs> because it, uh, in many ways, it just doesn't make rational sense, but it becomes a very strong habit. And tragically, even if everything is perfect, it's never too perfect that we can't ruin it through worrying about the future. And so even to look at, okay, well, how did the, how did the Buddha talk about worry? And what role does worry or, or the cessation of worry play in the whole scheme of the path to enlightenment? One of the things that, that the Buddha talked about was uh, just how we live our lifestyle. Now that, of course, will, will make a huge difference. Everything we say, everything we do is going to make a huge difference in the, the states of mind that we experience. Part of it is a sense of habit. Now, worrying can become such a strong, repetitive way of looking at life. Maybe we don't even question it anymore. Maybe we think that uh, we have to, that it's part of taking responsibility for the future. Worrying, I, I see worry like a double agent. It pretends it's your friend and it stabs you in the back. Right? Right? Because... Uh, I mean, there are, of course, legitimate f- things to fear. <laughs> you know, it's not discounting, of course. But there's always things that can go wrong in the future. There's never any time that there can't be things that are going to happen in the future that we are not wished for, that would be painful, that would be unpleasant, um, that would be very disappointing. So, of course, that we live with that all the time, and that's just part of the future is unknown. But if we always live that way, we're never, ever, ever going to be happy, right? Because the thing with worry is that it, it destroys happiness in the present moment. Even if, we, even if we're worried about something right now and we arrange it and everything turns out in the future exactly as we hope, are we going to be happy? No. If worrying is the way we relate to life, then that is going to be how we relate to life in the future. So even if we get everything exactly as we wish and hope for in the future, most likely we'll be worrying about the future at that time. And we won't really be able to enjoy what we have. So then we think, well, actually right now things aren't so bad, are they? And do we have everything we need to be happy? Right here and right now. Do we have everything we need to be happy? Well, yeah, it's not so bad. Now, of course, there are things that can go wrong in the future, but how do we relate to them in a responsible way and yet not fall into this uh, debilitating habit? One is just recognizing the habit. I mean, this is one of the things uh, we just have to be persistent with. Not just in sitting meditation, maybe in sitting meditation and walking meditation, we become more aware of it. We say, oh, there's worry again. Oh, there's worry again. Right? And this is why mindfulness is so key. You know, this general all-around awareness, but not just awareness of your breath or awareness of a meditation object, but a general awareness of our habits of mind, you know, how we relate, uh, the background way that we relate to everything in our life. If there's fear and insecurity, it's going to keep manifesting over and over and over again. 
And so that needs to be addressed. The roots of it need to be addressed. But checking the habit and noticing the habit will make a huge difference in the beginning. Mindfulness is like a light that at least shines and shows us what the present reality is. It's not the whole solution. Mindfulness is just one factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's not the whole path in and of itself, but it's key to be able to see what's going on in the present moment. And, and if we can do that, not just when we're sitting and walking, but when we're driving, when we're talking with people, when we're interacting, um, when we're working, everything that we do, especially when you're on your computer, then you know, from the time we get up in the morning till the time we go to bed at night, have this continuity of clear awareness. And then, every time that habit comes up, so there's a worry again, right? And at least acknowledging it, recognizing it, acknowledging it, and, and patiently, you know, don't, there's no need to chastise ourselves, you know, but it's, it's just, uh, there's that habit again, right? And looking, what's the effect? When I'm worrying about something in the future, what's the effect on my mind? What's the effect on my body? You know, does it create tension in the body? Certainly it creates tension in the mind. So recognizing that habit. The mind will naturally incline towards happiness. So if we are able to recognize that, oh, wait a minute, this habit is stealing my present happiness. That habit is not for my own benefit. Not for the benefit of anybody else. It may pretend to be for our own benefit, and that's the delusion, how it works in there. You say, well, I'm worrying about this. I'm worrying about this because I care about this other person. Right? I'm worrying about the care about. And it's almost like, well, if I don't worry about this person, then I don't, it means I don't care about them. Yeah? Or if I don't worry about my own future, it's like I don't care about myself. Well, no, there's a difference. You know, we can care and love and take responsibility, but worrying is like the, the, the flip side of it, the unwholesome. So being able to separate that and check, actually, we don't need to do that. I think I was able to get a handle on worrying. I mean, I, I was never a big worrier. <laughs> Partly, I guess, because I trusted my own intentions. I mean, of course, you know, worrying was... I, I worried in a, to the normal extent that, that a lot of us do. But I guess I, tr- I trust my intentions. And that's really as much as we can do. If we, if we check our motivation and we're clear on what our motivation is, then we are literally creating our future. And then that's as much as we can do. That, that is an active way to ensure that positive results will happen in the future. One practice that we do is called Tudong. It's a wandering practice where we uh, uh, intentionally go out and traditionally in Thailand it developed because in the old days if you wanted to get from one monastery to the other you had to walk. Uh, you, could take, you could take an ox cart but you know, it's quicker to walk. And so you'd walk through the forest and, uh, and then because it sometimes would take weeks or months then, then that whole lifestyle developed as part of the practice, part of the whole picture of being a forest monk in Thailand. 
Now, the forests in Thailand are majorly depleted. But going on Tudong, or doing this wandering practice in New Zealand, has worked out very well. And so in the time that I've been in New Zealand, almost every year uh, I've tried to take a month out of my schedule and just head off. And it's important that I have no fixed plans, absolutely no fixed plans whatsoever. Uh, we don't, we're not allowed to carry money, so we have no money with us. Uh, we're not allowed to carry food. And if I'm going just alone or with another monk, uh, we don't have any support system. And there was no itinerary set out on this night. We have this person, you know, we can stay at their house. When we get to this town, we can stay with that person. No. So we just start in one place and then head off. Absolutely no fixed plans whatsoever. Now, if you were prone to worrying, <laughs> you know, this, this could really set you off. <laughs> right? You got no money, you got no friends, right? You, 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 you dress like this uh, in New Zealand, you know, and in remote countryside places in New Zealand, um, you know, you've got, you've got no, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, like literally, <laughs> literally, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, and you don't know where you're going to sleep that night, and you think, you know, you could die from uh, obsessing with worry. So this is a very powerful practice. How do you get beyond that? How do you be at peace with that? Well, part of it is uh, uh, being willing to accept and be at peace with the lowest standard. Right? So I know that if I have to sleep in a park or in a sheep shed or uh, in a doorway somewhere, all of which I've done, then I'm okay with that. Yeah. And, and then that, that pulls the rug out from fear. Right? Fear is like, where am I going to stay tonight? Am I going to be warm enough? Is it going to rain? Where am I going right? to... Doesn't matter. Wherever I end up, it's good enough. It's good enough. Uh, <laughs> basically, you can just sleep almost anywhere. And uh, if you're tired after walking all day, you can sleep almost anywhere. <laughs> And, and so you have a low standard there, and, and then after a while you realize, well, you know, I've always found some place to sleep. It's never been a problem. Then with food, you say, well, geez, you know, we're not allowed to carry food. The only way we can get food when we're doing this worrying practice, I'm sorry, wandering practice, <laughs> <laughs> the only way we can get food is we have... We have a bowl, you know, we have a metal bowl like this, and, and we're not allowed to ask for food, but we can stand or walk silently, and anyone who wants to put food in our bowl can put food in our bowl. Now, of course, wandering around rural New Zealand, no one has any idea what I'm doing. So who's going to put food in my bowl? And I think, you know, I'm going to starve. How is this, you know? Um, but then I think... There are times when I'm staying in the monastery and I intentionally fast for a day, two days, three days. It's like, well, I'm surrounded by food and I intentionally fast. And how is it? Well, I'm fine. I, I do it intentionally you know, because I see the benefit of it. So if that happens, then it's not going to be a problem. So whether I get food or I don't get food, 
um, it will be fine. I'll be able to continue on. Um, if that happens more than a week, okay, we'll reconsider. You know, we'll reconsider an alternative plan. But, but I've never, ever gone hungry. Right? That's the amazing thing. You're just standing in front of a, a supermarket silently with a ball, and uh, maybe someone comes and they have no idea what I'm doing. Maybe they recognize me as a monk, but they think maybe I'm asking for donations or they try to put some coins in my bowl and say, thank you very much, but we're not allowed to accept uh, money. Uh, we can only accept offerings of food. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> no, no, I don't wink. But <laughs> and, and more often than not, they'll, they'll say, oh, okay, oh, just wait a minute. And they go in and... And I don't know, you know, why they're doing their shopping. They come out and put something in. We get some strange combinations of food, but we've never, ever gone without food. And so that's, that's amazing. And so when I trust in my, what I think are good intentions, you know, my intention in going out and doing this practice is to practice the Dhamma. And... Uh, that's my refuge. And so whatever happens, fine. That's beyond my control. But I keep coming back to that original wholesome intention, and then whatever falls from that, I trust that that will be just fine. And it always is just fine. And then after a while, you realize it always works out. It always works out. And then I stop worrying. <laughs> I still have to plan. I mean, people appreciate if I'm... If I'm traveling, they appreciate that I actually plan, but I don't worry anymore. I mean, I'm not, I'm sure something could maybe be bad enough that it might make me worry, but um, I think of it, it's not a major issue anymore, <laughs> which is great, because no matter what happens in the future, you know, there's so much that's just out of our control anyways. Uh, it, even if we have everything planned out and we think, oh yeah, I've, I've worried enough, I've really got it figured out now. Um, it's not going to turn out that way. You know? It's not. And so, well, okay. What we, what we can do, what we do have at least the illusion of control over is our reaction in the present moment. Right here, right now, what's my intention? Because we're literally creating our future right here and right now. So if you want to have a happy future, you know, be happy. <laughs> if, you, if you want to have a, uh, you know, a future that's filled with worry and insecurity, then just feel, keep worrying. But it's not out of our control. That's the thing. You know, if, sometimes it feels like it's out of, out of control. It's just this uncontrollable habit that we have. But, you know, it is, yeah, sometimes it is a strong habit, but it doesn't mean we can't change it. And... And the mind will naturally want to incline towards being wise and, and, and peaceful and content if we give it a chance. If we, if we shine enough light on how our minds are working, how our hearts are working, how our emotions work, then there'll be a natural inclination towards you know, seeing, oh, when I, when I have this reaction to the present moment, it's very pleasant. When I have this reaction to the present moment, it destroys everything. You know, even if everything's fine, even if everything is perfect, you know, we can, uh, how we approach it, you know, we can destroy it. So then, 
That then, I mean, even if you can live a life free from worry, you know, it's, it's very conducive to living a happy life. But that uh, sets in motion like a whole, a whole domino effect, a positive domino effect that gradually leads towards enlightenment. Because when we, when we really start to be free of worry, then naturally what happens, I mean, we, we, joy, a natural joy starts to arise. It's like uh, instead of repressing our natural joyous or uh, feeling at ease with life, we just allow it to, to come up. And so when we start to feel uh, joy and uh, being at ease and, and freedom from remorse, freedom from worry, then, then naturally the body and mind become very peaceful, you know, very settled, very tranquil. And so if you're feeling restless sometimes in meditation or other times, you know, if the mind's restless and when the mind's restless, the body feels restless and, and it's difficult to still sit still for periods of time and, and uh, you've got aches and pains... When joy is arising in, in medita- you know, not just meditation, it's life. You know, really, Dhamma practice is all about life. Meditation is just kind of a systematic training that we do to, to encourage uh, a more refined attentiveness. But really, we're talking about life. And so when joy is just becomes more and more normal in life, then boy, we feel really a lot more centered in our body. A lot more, uh, the body just is naturally more tranquil. And then meditation becomes a lot more easy. When the body feels tranquil, the mind correspondingly calms down, feels a lot more tranquil, peaceful. Discomfort doesn't arise uh, very as easily in the body when the body's relaxed. And when the mind's relaxed, then you can sit for long periods of time. And then we start to get a sense of what real happiness is. We may have all sorts of assumptions about what happiness is. We may be devoting our life to happiness ostensibly. Uh, everyone you know, is doing what they think is necessary in order to experience happiness. If not now, then in the future. But it's good to check you know, what assumptions we have about that because um, certain types of happinesses are very unreliable. And when we start to experience a sense of uh, inner peace and tranquility, there's a, a general, hap- like a, a deep, heartfelt happiness that starts to arise in your heart that is not based on external conditions. It's somewhat based on external conditions, but it's not, it's not based on gratification of desires. It, it wells up from within our own hearts. And you start to realize, well, the happiness that I've been looking is actually not out there so much, but it's right here. Yeah? And we, oh, I have everything I need to be happy right here and right now. Oh, it's just welling up from within. So then... What happens when we're happy and you sit down to meditate? It's a lot easier to meditate. It's a lot easier for the mind to become very peaceful very quickly. And the Buddha said this is just a natural 
process of the mind. This is just a natural way that the mind works. When the mind is happy, this is the proximate cause for the rising of deep, peaceful meditation, what we call samadhi. This whole relationship between happiness and Dhamma practice is, is central to the whole path of Buddhism. Huh? Um, the Buddha wisely recognize that the human mind inclines towards happiness. But if we, if we pay attention and recognize that real happiness doesn't necessarily come from desiring, getting, gratification, clinging, that whole process, if we watch it carefully, is, is very disturbing to the mind's peace. Well, real happiness actually comes from, well, not desiring, being at peace with what we have already, being content. You know, contentment is not something that's necessarily at the end of the path, but we can practice immediately. Can we be content with this right here, right now, just exactly what we have in the present moment? And so the, the Buddha used the mind's inclination towards happiness to, to guide it deeper and deeper and deeper into the, the stages of um, ethical behavior, uh, through the stages of enlightenment, through the stages of uh, developing deeper stages of meditation and samadhi, and then right through the stages of insight. It's important not to worry about being too happy or to worry about getting attached to happiness, right? Now, of course, there are, you know, we're not saying the happiness that arises from a, fr- at this stage is the end of the path or there's not more to do or that, you know, the, there's all, clearly further and deeper levels of insight to be cultivated. But happiness is very clearly an important step along the way. In fact, every step of the way if we recognize that, oh, you know, when I, stop, when I stop intentionally hurting other beings, actually I feel better, right? You know, it's in the very beginning, first precept. When I stop intentionally, I notice, yeah, when I stop killing other people, I feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely, there's this correlation there. <laughs> you know, I, know, I, never, I was never very mindful previously, but now I recognize, you know, that definitely upsets the mind's natural peace. So then every step of the way is, is, is something similar. It's, it's like, well, okay, can I give up a more uh, gross or unrefined happiness for a more refined happiness? And if, with mindfulness, if we see one next to the other, you don't even have to think about it, right? It just immediately, our minds will incline towards the more refined, the deeper, and the more satisfying happiness. And just, it's just a matter of paying attention. If we don't pay attention, then we're just operating blindly through our conditioning. The Buddha tried the, Buddha tried the path of denying all happiness, thinking that that would be um, a way to burn up all the one's old kama, and he realized that um, that taking the path of extreme asceticism, physical asceticism, and not also not allowing him himself mental happiness, right? Uh, 
he took that to the limit. He, he, he didn't think it was possible for a human being to take it any further. And he recognized, still, this hasn't worked. And it's not possible anyways to burn up all one's old karma. So then he thought, you know, could there be a different way? <laughs> Fortunately, because he was on the edge of death, he was so emaciated, you know, at that point he thought, could there be another way? And a memory came up from his childhood, which turned out to be like a, a key turning point in his entire approach towards achieving enlightenment. A memory came up when he was a young child, and um, his father, the, uh, the, the king from, uh, from northern India, was doing a, a ceremony, and he was probably about six years old, young child, sat underneath uh, a tree, and he was surrounded by attendants, but he didn't have any other siblings there. He was just sitting underneath a tree, and, and very peacefully went into this very deep state of meditation. That's called the first jhana. And it was filled with um, rapture and, and peace. Uh, you know, and at the time, uh, he was in that state for quite a while, and uh, he had no awareness of his surroundings, but he had very clear internal awareness. And it naturally came to an end, and his attendants were all amazed. This young, young child had just gone into this, you know, like some rishi. And, but he hadn't really revisited that. In all of his uh, trying this and that and various teachers uh, in his quest for enlightenment, and the memory came up and he thought, you know, could this be the way? Because there was so much happiness in that state. He thought, well, you know, it almost feels indulgent if you've dedicated your life to asceticism. <laughs> it feels kind of indulgent to have so much happiness. And, but he said, could that be the way? And he intuitively felt that, yeah, that is the way. Well, why am I afraid of that happiness which, doesn't, uh, have, which arises from wholesome states of mind? It doesn't have any uh, drawbacks based on sensuality. So then he changed his whole attitude and approach towards practice and very quickly uh, went to Bodh Gaya underneath the Bodhi tree and... Um, and uh, sat for the entire night and developed these deep states of meditation called jhana and, and uh, in the morning developed insight, liberating insight. So the relationship of happiness towards insight is a crucial one. If we think that all happiness is somehow indulgent, then we're going to have a, we're gonna have a very, very difficult time we're going to have an unpleasant life, and meditation is just not going to proceed very well. If we somehow maybe assume that when happiness arises, oh, I don't deserve this, or, uh, I'm, oh, better be careful, I might get attached to that. Right? It's okay to get a little attached to it. I mean, of course, you know, if, if a lot of happiness starts to arise in meditation, it's going to be wonderful. But it's also going to make you devoted to meditation. And if we're wise, we're going to recognize that, well, if this is that great, if I take it even further, you know, it could be even better. And so the path of uh, developing meditation, working away through all the hindrances, developing deep, 
deep states of samadhi and peace is gradually letting go of the coarser happinesses and experiencing more and more refined and deep and pr- profound and satisfying happinesses. And, and, and then it continues. And then when we come out of states of, of deep peace, naturally there, we start to see things as they truly are. And again, this is just one of the natural consequences from samadhi. You know, it leads on to, in Pali, what we call uh, yata buddha nyanadasana, seeing things as they truly are. Uh, it's just a natural consequence because our minds are not filled with restlessness. We're not filled with uh, all of these hindrances which obscure the clarity. And so for a period of time after, um, after a peaceful meditation, feel very clear, very bright, very aware. You know, if, it's, if it is a, a proper state of samadhi, there's very powerful mindfulness, very powerful awareness. And then when we open our eyes, when we start to move, when we start to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, then there's, uh, it's just a natural time for wisdom uh, to start developing with insight. We start to see things maybe clearly for the first time ever. You know? For the first time, we're not seeing it through. Uh, through so many layers of, of perceptions uh, based on projections, which are based on cultural conditioning, which are based on a whole range of desires and reactions and angers and worries. And so then the whole insight process really starts to get some momentum. It's like without that, we're under a magic spell. It's like, like an evil wizard has put a magic spell on us. And then when we start to see things as they truly are, it's like we uh, break the enchantment, disenchantment. And then that naturally leads on to uh, even further states of you know, just seeing what really leads to happiness and what doesn't. And then naturally, it's easy to let go. You know, the thing about letting go is if we don't see the drawback of something, we're, how can you let something go? You know, you can f- try to force ourselves, but that, that doesn't really work. But once we see that, oh, wait a minute, actually, why would I want to hold on to that when this is better? And then, you know, it's, uh, it's the Buddha's wise way of using our inclination towards happiness to take it deeper and deeper and deeper until, um, I mean, any, any uh, attachment that we might have had to the happinesses along the way keep getting let go of, one by one, let go. You know? And uh, until, until the final enlightenment or Nibbana, the Buddha didn't say a lot about what it was actually like because no one would really understand, and even putting it into words would not do it justice. But one thing he did say is that Nibbana, or full enlightenment, is the highest happiness. Nothing to worry about. Or as they say in New Zealand, no worries, mate. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. And if anybody has any questions, please... Happy to respond. Um, 
I'll start off with a question and then open it to to others. Um, so I I love the way you you share first about the the trust that comes going on to Dong and not knowing what's coming next and how how that's that's influenced you and uh, you know letting go of not needing to know and that. Also, you saying that uh, we naturally incline, we we want to incline towards happiness, um, and there's a part of us that is really looking for that. Um, I wonder if you have any comments. Um, I've seen many people um, that, although they understand what leads to happiness. Um, and that worry is, you know, doesn't make sense. There's um, their body doesn't understand what their mind understands, and there's this unnatural response. Even though they know better, uh, how to um, how to overcome or work with that. Uh, Habitual response that's been practiced so uh, so deeply uh, with within the within the body. Uh, I wonder if you have any any comments on on that. Uh, certainly, when something is very deeply ingrained, it's not going to go away quickly. Right? So it's good to be. Well, I mean, we have to be incredibly patient with ourselves, incredibly gentle, but also very persistent. And what really does it is this, uh, if, if, our, if the part of our mind which is watching and observing actually starts to see even a little bit that, oh, I'm peaceful, and then a worry arises and it destroys that peace, then you don't have to think about it. You know, it's like it happens on a level deeper than thought. You don't say, oh, this... <laughs> This worry destroys my happiness, because part of the mind has already seen that, and will and and will know it, and will and will know now that oh, the gig's up, you know, the the double agent has been seen. But delusion is very deeply ingrained, so every time in the future, then we don't pay attention, it sneaks in again, right? So, as, if we're paying attention then when it happens, that part of the mind will naturally see, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot of drawbacks here. You know? And it just destroyed, you know, the moment before I, I, the worry arose, I was actually quite all right. But there's so many moments in the day that we're not mindful, or not mindful enough. And worrying is just like going on in the background. Um, we may be thinking about something else meanwhile, you know, worrying is going on, or we're driving somewhere and we're worrying about something. Maybe there's so little mindfulness that we don't even know we're worrying, right? and it's just going on. You know, it, and so that—that's uh, why we emphasize mindful awareness so much. You know, in in every activity throughout the day, just trying to make it as continuous as possible and catching ourselves. Oh, there it is. Even if we can just catch ourselves, well. Oh, there it is. Recognize it. And, uh, and it may be surprising how often it comes up throughout the day. 
working with the body, certainly um, the body and mind uh, reflect each other. So sometimes the mind is so quick and fickle and difficult to see, it's actually easier just to pay attention to physical sensations within the body. And uh, there will be places where we'll tend to tense up, which will correspond to certain states of mind. You know, it might, for some people, it might be in the shoulders or the neck or the solar plexus. And um, that can be like an early warning system you know, for, for, for many people. So, so suddenly we notice, oh, geez, I'm tensing up here. And then we recognize, oh, gosh, you know, my, I've got this fear in my mind. I didn't even know. I didn't, I didn't even know that I had this fear in my mind, but I recognized it once I noticed that I was tensing up here. All right. And so that, that can be very helpful. So, so this is it, this is a process uh, that requires a lot of patience and, uh, <laughs> for for all the conditioning that's been sure. developed, and even with a with clear seeing, there's still those reactions that that can that can come up. So. Yeah, and this is the thing with insight. Even if you have a clear insight into how the mind works and around worry once, and you think, ah, now I got it. I I've seen you. You may have to go there. You may have to have that insight hundreds of times before it really sinks in. Yeah. Great. Thank you. <laughs> um, I had a question. Um, you started out with the observation that Americans are worrying too much and so on. And, and I mean, do you have any further comments on you know, like what's going on here? Because you know, because I agree with you. I mean, having traveled a little bit around the world, and what what is going on here? And, and you know, in that regard. I don't know. You tell me. You live here. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a lot. There's worry is related. To, worry is a fear. Worry is related to fear. Fear comes from insecurity. Fear and insecurity are very related to aggression. There's a, a clear relationship between that. When, when people are aggressive, they tend to project, uh, f- they project danger. When people are, when, because we tend to think blindly, we tend to think that other people are like ourselves. So when we are aggressive, we tend to project that other people will be aggressive and other situations are dangerous. And so if, if through either whatever way that we're aggressive, whether it's through anger or, or through competition or militarily, then uh, we're creating a lot of insecurity that comes back on us, and we always be afraid. So this is the, this is the whole, I don't know, uh, idiocy of the idea that um, being aggressive makes you, f- makes you stronger or more secure. It actually increases insecurity, uh, at least mentally. So when people have uh, a very strong attitude of loving kindness and compassion for other people in every situation around the world, tend not to be worried about much. Right? Because... Uh, especially when loving kindness and compassion is, is developed uh, more and more towards an unconditional level, no matter what anyone else does or says to us, we know 
we're still going to have loving kindness for them. Right? And so there's a sense of fearlessness that comes up from that. So, well, I don't feel insecure. You know, I'm not worried. I walk around like this, you know, in the middle of uh, all sorts of Western situations. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I could worry about what other people think, but I don't anymore. Yeah? When I first came back uh, as a monk uh, in the United States, it was 1992, and I was walking down Telegraph Avenue. <laughs> and I was thinking, hmm, I'm really dressed very differently than everyone else. And uh, say, I wonder if they're looking at me. Mm, yeah, they are looking at me. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I, I wasn't the weirdest one. <laughs> you know, it's still, it still Berkeley. Yeah. Right, but... It's about the only place <laughs> that you'd fit right in. <laughs> That's yeah. right. But, but I remember, you know, at that point, I was still working with this sense of self-consciousness, worrying about what other people might think of me, why have I intentionally set myself apart through my dress? You know, working with the, and uh, and then one one young woman just looked at me and she said, she, "I don't know." She could kind of tell. She said, "Yeah, you're all right." <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, it's like yeah. And so now I don't. Whatever people think is fine. It's their business. <laughs> But I, I think that is part of it. It is part of it. If, if whenever people are aggressive, it leads to feeling like we're always surrounded by danger, which is, leads to insecurity, which leads to incessant worry. Bhante, um, how does one cultivate the perception of death? Um... Consistently <laughs> and regularly, when the the Buddha was asking his monks one day, "How often do you, you know, how often do you uh, recollect the fact that uh, we're mortal, we'll die, our life is going to come to an end, life is precious but limited? How often do you reflect that?" And different monks would answer, "You know, once a day." And he said, "Not, you know, not good enough." You know, well, twice a day, down to you know, with every mouthful of food. I contemplate this could be my last mouthful of food and I could die after this. And with every in-breath and every out-breath, we contemplate this could be my last in-breath, my last out-breath. Say, okay, that's correct. So that's an easy one to take for granted. It's easy to assume that, especially if we're worried about the future, it's easy to assume that we're actually going to have a future. What a waste of time that would be, huh? We're, you know, we're worrying, we're, we're d- destroying the present moment, worrying about our future, and then we die in a car crash. Well, what a waste of time. So it is, it, is, uh, it is very important. And interestingly enough, it's not depressing. You know, people think, oh, contemplation of death. You know, thinking about my own death all the time might be a bit depressing. But if it's done properly, it makes you so grateful to be alive. You know, you recognize that, wow, this is special. This is unique. Every moment is unique. Every day is like, wow, I'm alive. I woke up again. I'm alive. I can do something. What, what can I do today which would be beneficial? And then approaching life that way. 
you just start to, you don't take it for granted. And you recognize that, wow, life is, is really precious. And then part of that, of course, you know, we start to contemplate, well, what are our, our highest priorities? If we think that time is, is unlimited, it's no problem to waste time doing useless, stupid, petty things like worrying. <laughs> but if we clearly recognize that, wow, time is limited. Time is very limited. It's like, wow, getting old, time's limited. How are we going to spend our time? How, how do we really want to spend our time in the most beneficial way? And then we can start to clarify our priorities in life. And then when we do that, we start spending more time with the things which are really important. And then life becomes more satisfying, you know, because we're doing what is, what is really important or what we, or we deeply care about. We're actually spending time with the things which are most important to us. And of course, the most important thing to the Buddha was practicing the Dhamma for enlightenment. So there's a constant encouragement saying life is short. Life is unpredictable. The future is unknown. Practice the Dhamma with great energy and persistence. I have a question about uh, uh, lay practice for most of us who uh, may not be so lucky as to spend uh, 25 years as a monastic. Um, And uh, partly you've you've talked uh, a lot about the value of mindfulness all the time throughout the day, but I wonder if you could comment on suggestions for lay practice of formal practices, meditation specifically. Well, of course, uh, consistently sitting and walking meditation is very important. But maybe even more important than that is not just keeping track of the hours or clocking in a time, saying, okay, I'm disciplined, so I'm going to sit every day at this time. But even more important than that is how do I make every single thing throughout the day into meditation? And what, is, what does meditation mean? Right? Meditation is, is this uh, developing a continuity of clear awareness. Now in the beginning, because it's hard enough to do even with our, you know, with our eyes closed, sitting still, not talking, you know, we try to simplify it and develop uh, mindful awareness of our breath you know, without many external distractions. But that's not, the, that's not the end goal. I mean, that's a way of training, but then once we open our eyes, you know, once, we, once we're sweeping, once we're conversing, interacting with other people, then that is, that's even a greater challenge Say, okay, well, how can I make this into meditation? How can I maintain the sense of clear awareness in the situation? Not just aware of my nose tip, but all around clear awareness of the whole situation. You go into a room, and you kind of take in the whole situation. And then we start to act appropriately. You start to say things which are, are conducive to harmony, and the, say things at the right time, in the right place, and just the right amount, right? Because we, we're paying attention. And you can take certain things throughout the day that we do regularly. For example, do you brush your teeth? I hope you brush your teeth. I assume you brush your teeth. If you brush your teeth at least once a day, then you say, okay, well, 
while I'm brushing my teeth, I don't, I don't have to do anything else. Right? I don't have to be, I mean, you can't talk anyways, right? So you can't, you, you want, okay, so speech is out, so you don't, have to, you don't have the responsibility to uphold a conversation. But there's nothing that you have to figure out while you're brushing your teeth. There's no brilliant idea that can't wait until you finish. And so you say, well, while I'm brushing my teeth, that's at least a minute or two every day, hopefully a couple times a day, for good dental hygiene, <laughs> that, that we can meditate, right? And, and something so simple, but just really paying attention, because of course it takes almost zero mindfulness to brush your teeth. You know, you can be mentally 99% thinking about what you're going to do next, or later on in the day, or shopping, or whatever, and, and before you know it, you know, you're done, and you've had almost no awareness of the whole process of brushing. So just like being there completely, right? and then a thought arises, okay, not now, just come back, brushing your teeth. Not now, just come back, brushing your teeth. And then we do that with brushing our teeth, and then we say, okay, well, let's, let's add another activity that we do every day. Right? Uh, driving. Now, if we're driving alone, you, can, uh, you don't have to look for distraction. You don't have to have um, the radio on or listening to something. You don't have to... You don't have to do anything other than hopefully you know, pay attention to the other vehicles. And <laughs> but it's, it's a good med- time to meditate. You know, okay, just sit there silently, driving. Um, it's a great opportunity for watching emotions arise. Right? So, <laughs> oh. oh, that was an unpleasant sensation of road rage. Right? <laughs> So, so driving, is, I mean, you're sitting anyways, you might as well make it into sitting meditation. Right? So driving, we do a lot. Um, eating, you know, eating is a very popular activity in life. So if you make eating into meditation, you take that same attitude of eating, uh, of meditation into the process of eating, then you have a lot of time to meditate. Right? You know, it was just, uh, especially if, if you're alone, if you happen to be alone, um, then when you're eating and just, just uh, I mean, the whole process says so much about ourselves, how we approach food, how much we take, our attitude towards it, what we eat first. Um, uh, do, we, do we take it for granted? Uh, is there a sense of gratitude? Uh, all of these things. And then as we're eating, paying attention to the whole process, um, what's, you know, what are our thoughts? What kind of thoughts arise? You know, as we're eating, what uh, type of emotions arise when we're eating? Um, paying attention not just to the beginning of the bite, because that's the interesting, exciting part. You know, we take a bite and then it's this burst of flavor, you know, but then we keep chewing and, you know, you know, we're not even done with this bite and already we're looking for the next one. Right? So how we approach food is very much how we approach life. You know? So if we're always looking for the, the, next, the next burst of flavor... You know, the next sensory hit, you know, without, you know, we haven't even finished this bite. We just pay attention to one bite completely, you know. You know the initial part is exciting, then it becomes a bit, mm, bit more boring. And then by the end it's like, oh, can we get this out of the way, you know. I'm ready for my next bite, please. Right? And just watching the mind through that whole process. And activity by activity gradually 
creates a continuity of, of meditation in action throughout the whole day. Now, the most challenging times is when we're conversing with other people. You know, and really being there, because there's a lot happening. If you have a dialogue uh, with one other person, listening to what the person is, listening to the words, but then also paying attention to the nonverbal communication, and then also paying attention to your own emotional reaction, you know, being in your body and being aware of your mind, and then also formulating thoughts in response to that. I mean, a simple conversation, there's a lot going on. Um, but it's, it's fruitful ground for learning about ourselves. So there's no end to opportunities to meditate throughout the day. You just have to you know, keep bringing that attitude into every activity. Um, my question is um, also on, with lay people. Um, different people have passions that they have. Um, people who are drawn to uh, play music, um, to create art, things like that. Um, I guess my question is sort of how does one resolve this uh, a, a passion like that, which is very seems very not. Buddhist. <laughs> oh, well, <clears throat> with first of all, you could join our band. Yeah. <laughs> James and I are going to get a band together, I think. Um, no, it's... He, he was a drummer before he became a monk. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with an artistic expression of your emotions. There's nothing un-Buddhist about it. It's a way of expressing your joy in daily life. No problem with that. Or, is it, or it's an expression of whatever emotion you're feeling. It may not be joy, it may be sadness. Some of the best music comes from sadness. <laughs> but uh, whatever it is, it's fine. If you want to express it through music, that's wonderful. But the idea of... Um, as uh, and we'll need to wrap up in a moment, but the idea, as he said, that sometimes people get that it's not very Buddhist to feel passion about things or uh, delight in things or um, that aliveness. Just any mm. any words? Yeah, strange. I'm passionate about a lot of things. I'm passionate about Dharma practice. Yeah. I'm passionate about about being in the forest. I love being in nature. There's a lot of things I'm passionate about. Um, and like you say, uh, happiness is not an enemy. right? Um, and even some forms of sensual or worldly happiness like music, you know, if you're in a relationship, um, if, you're, if you love nature and you're out in nature and you're enjoying the view, it's not so bad. Right? It's, it's, it's okay. It's, we're not saying that's enlightenment. Or we're not saying that, that uh, uh, you, we can't even find deeper sources of peace and gratification. But even the enlightened masters that I've seen, um, when they walk through a forest, you know, they, they appreciate, you know, I mean, they're very, they're very centered, but they appreciate, you know, the beauty of nature. Now, things like music, maybe we get the idea that, that music is un-Buddhist because on meditation retreats we ask people to leave their drum sets at home. 
Now, there's a practical reason for that, right? Because, you know, we affect the people around us. <laughs> and so if one person's singing and dancing and playing music, it kind of, you know, it's a little difficult, makes it a little bit more difficult for other people who are trying to be silent. So on meditation retreats, you know, we consider them, okay, well, we won't do that during this time, but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with it. Great, thank you. Maybe uh, just to to close, if you want to do some dedication of uh, of merit, or if there's a, a brief brief one, we have a uh, the Buddha's words on loving kindness. I could chant that for everybody as a blessing. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great and the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to wrong views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is not born again into this world. And we all say sadhu three times. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you very much, Bhante. Thank you, Jane. Mm. Thank you. Enjoy mm. your week. No worries.
<laughs> Just be here in the present moment and things will be fine. Um, so have a good week and stack up the chairs as a mindfulness and generosity practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.